0: Hey folks, and welcome back to The Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we're pressing on in our little series on biblical worldview with James Jordan. We are moving on from the Enoch factor and moving into a sub-series on the temptations of Jesus in the wilderness. This is really a fantastic and kind of a classic Jim Jordan lecture, where he reveals that there's much more to these passages than meet the eye. We hope and pray that you enjoy this time of teaching, and thank you so much for listening. And here is James Jordan discussing the temptations of Christ.
1: We will begin a consideration of the temptations of Christ, we'll use Matthew chapter 4 as our springboard. This is part of our Basic Christian Worldview series, and uh, the temptations of Christ make a particularly good place to discuss certain aspects of the Christian view of everything. And uh, so we're going to use that. And I'd like for you to turn to Matthew chapter 4. We'll actually begin reading in chapter 3, verse 13. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answering said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he permitted him. And after being baptized, Jesus went up immediately from the water And behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and coming upon him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted forty days and forty nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If, or more properly, since you are the Son of God, Command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city, and he stood him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If or since you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will give his angels charge concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things will I give you if you fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. This morning we are concerned, first of all, with an overview of this passage and the events recorded here, we may get into the first temptation this morning. It's significant that the temptation of Christ occurs immediately upon his baptism. We must therefore initially look at the baptism of Christ, see what it means, at least in general, and then that will provide a context in which we can understand the temptations. Then we need to look at the general situation of fasting 40 days and other things that are significant about the situation itself, and then the three temptations. The temptation to turn stones into bread, what that means. Um, The temptation to do a mighty miracle and cast himself down from the temple. And then probably the most difficult temptation to understand, how it could even be a temptation for God to worship the devil. We notice that the temptation here, Satan comes straight to him and says, I will give you these things if you fall down and worship me. It's fairly obvious, isn't it, that God is not in the least tempted to bow down and worship the devil. So how can this even be a temptation? In what context does it make sense for this to be a temptation? You and I might be tempted to do something like this, but what sense does it make to tempt the Son of God to fall down and worship the devil? There's only one possible explanation for that. Uh, There's only one context in which such a temptation can even be seen as rational. We'll have to find that. Let's look at the setting of the temptations then. First of all, the historical context is the baptism of Christ. Second, the situational context is the wilderness and his hunger. Third, the moral context is the question of what sin is. Let's look at the baptism of Jesus. What does baptism mean? Well, you get the Geneva Papers and you read every month uh, an essay on the broader and narrower meanings of baptism in the Bible. And since baptism is a sign of the gospel, what baptism means is everything the gospel means. However, there is a narrower focus to the meaning of baptism, and that is union with God. We see this in 1 Corinthians 12 verses 12 and 13 For even as the body is one and yet has many members and all the members and all the members of the body though they are many are one body so also is Christ For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body whether Jews or Greeks whether slaves or free and we were all made to drink of one spirit What we see from this is that baptism places us into union with Christ similarly in A couple of pages earlier in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 2, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Baptism for us signifies union with Christ. Baptism for Christ signified union with us. That's why John the Baptist had a difficult time understanding it. Why would you need to be baptized? You don't need to be cleansed, said John. You don't need to cross the boundary into the promised land. You are the promised land. That's what the Jordan River was, you know. You remember in the wilderness, when the people were thirsty, there was a rock. And out of the rock came water to feed the people, to uh, give the people drink, if you'll recall. Well, the Jordan River comes out of a great big rock. The rock is located at Caesarea Philippi. And when Jesus said to Peter, Peter, upon his confession, you are like this rock, and upon this rock I will build my church. They were standing in front of a huge rock cliff. And the Jordan River actually comes out of that. That's the beginning of the Jordan. The whole Jordan River flows out from this rock and has therefore the same basic meaning. It flows from Christ the rock, or from God, and is that cleansing stream. And the reason that baptisms were performed at the Jordan is that the Jordan forms a boundary between God's land and the wilderness. And those who were in the wilderness had to pass through that boundary into the promised land. And John the Baptist had come and he had said, look, you people have been circumcised. Your forefathers were sprinkled with blood. Your forefathers were sprinkled with the ashes of the heifer. And yet you are unclean and sinful. And so I want all of you people to repent. And as a sign of repentance, all of you have to come out in the wilderness where I am to hear me. If you want to hear my message, said John, you've got to come out into the wilderness, start over. And so the people who wanted to hear, they had to cross the Jordan River and get out in the wilderness. And then John would say, if you want to be saved and enter into the kingdom of God, you have to cross this river a second time and be baptized. And by doing so, confess that you're outsiders, that you're not really in, and that you have to come in by grace. And so he was baptizing at the Jordan, and now comes Jesus to him, And John says, how is it that you need to be baptized? Having the Spirit of God, John immediately recognized Jesus. His instincts were such that he knew who he was. After all, he'd known who he was in the womb, if you'll recall. And the pregnant Mary stood face to face with the pregnant Elizabeth. The baby John the Baptist in the womb knew that Christ was the one who was in the womb and leaped for joy. He'd known all along who Jesus was. He recognized him as a fetus. He recognizes him now at the age of 30 years. How is it that you need to be baptized? Well, Jesus doesn't have to be baptized as a confession of sin or to be cleansed or for any of the other meanings of baptism. Rather, he is baptized as the high priest. high priest of Israel at the age of 30 was anointed and sprinkled with water, and that placed him in union with the people. And just as baptism placed the people in union with the high priest, so the baptism of the high priest placed him in union with the people as their representative. And so the baptism of Christ made him the office bearer. It made him the high priest. It anointed him to be the king and the priest, both of which were anointed in the Old Testament. And now being anointed with the Holy Spirit, (coughs) he becomes the second Adam, the representative man. In a sense, Christ was born the second Adam, but in a more powerful sense, He is baptized into being the second Adam here at the Jordan River. And now taking up his official role, he must stand for the church. We, when we're face to face with Satan and his his temptations, will always fall. Christ has to stand as our substitute. But it is also true that we stand in union with him. We stand in union with him. So that the temptations that Christ experiences are the same ones we will experience. And His victory, it is only in His victory that we will be able to find victory. We could look at, for instance, at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, which says, We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things the same as we are, yet without sin. The only victory we have over sin and temptation is going to come by standing in union with Christ. So when we look at the temptations that come to Christ, these are the same temptations that are going to come to the church. These are the same temptations that will come to us as individuals and also to the church as a body. The same kinds of deceptions, the same way of address. When the tempter comes to us who are in union with Christ, he will address us the same way with the same words, with the same intention. The only way we will be able to stand is to give the answers that Jesus gave, and not only so trusting in our own power, but trusting in his own victory over these particular temptations. As a result, this is not just something that happened in the life of Christ that's of interest, but it's something that's immediately relevant to our daily lives. Let's consider now Christ as the second Adam, having been baptized, having been given this official adoption as the second Adam in baptism, now Christ is ready to stand as our substitute. Satan came to Adam, Adam listened to Satan, Adam rebelled against God, and turned that pleasant paradise into a howling wilderness. Thus, in order to save us, Christ must undo the sin of Adam. Jesus leaves the garden and goes into the wilderness in order to reopen paradise. It's interesting to look at the garden idea in the Gospels. Adam was in the garden. Adam fell and was cast out. Jesus, in order to take us back into the garden, past the cherubim with their flaming sword safely. He must leave and go out in the wilderness and bring us back in. Adam was with friendly animals in the garden. Jesus in the wilderness, according to Mark 1:13, was with the wild beasts—tremendous, threatening thing. Let's look at a few ideas, <clears throat> a few garden passages in the Gospels, just to see how this shows up. John chapter 18 shows us this general thing in a more concentrated form. You'll find in the Bible that the same basic patterns repeat over and over again. Adam is cast out of the garden and into the wilderness because of his sin. Uh, Because of their sin, the Hebrew people are cast into uh, a wilderness in the land of Egypt, and then they're delivered out. Because of their sin, they're cast out of the promised land and into Babylon. As our substitute, Jesus is cast out of the paradise, out of the garden, and into the jaws of death. This pattern repeats as do the other patterns in the Bible. Each time is different. Each time tells us, gives us a different perspective on the whole. Unity and diversity. But let's look at John chapter 18, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, and this is after the high priestly prayer, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden into which he himself entered and his disciples. Remember? The garden of Gethsemane. But then in verse 26, uh we find, well, we find in the passage itself, as you well know, that Jesus is taken from the garden out into the land where Satan dwells, where Caiaphas and Pilate are waiting for him. And also in verse 26, of course, one of the slaves of the high priest, being a relative of the one whose ear Peter had cut off, said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? So, reference to Christ being in the garden and people being in the garden with him. But now that Christ is out of the garden, Peter is not able to stand. Similarly, we find, and you can keep your finger in John if you want, if you're following these things, in Luke chapter 23, verses 39 to 43. Now Jesus is out of the garden. In fact, he's outside of the gates of Jerusalem being crucified in an unclean place where all the dead are. You remember that when the sacrifices were burned up, the, the filthy parts of the sacrifice were supposed to be burnt up in an unclean place outside the camp. That's where they crucified Jesus, at the place of the skulls. Now you'll remember that if you came in contact with the dead body in the Old Testament, you became unclean. And so Golgotha, the place of the skull, is the, the nadir of uncleanness and death in the Bible. And that's where Christ is crucified, outside the garden. But now, outside the garden, he looks forward to coming back in. Luke 23, verse 39 to 43. And one of the criminals who were hanged there, and that's the proper English, uh, things are hung, people are hanged. One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered, rebuking him, said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are reserve, deserving, <coughs> excuse me, we are receiving what we, we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. So Jesus looks forward to getting back into the garden as a result of destroying death. I don't know if you've ever heard this before, but it's helpful to remember this about the three crosses on Calvary. On one cross, there was a man who had no sin, but sin had been put upon him. That was Christ. Next to him, there was a man who was a sinner, and he bore his own sin and went to hell. And on the other side, there was a man who was a sinner, but the sin was not imputed to him, and he went to heaven. Those are the three conditions of men. They're all there on Calvary. Well, let's look back at the book of John, John chapter 20 starting in verse 11. And this is on resurrection morning. But Mary was standing outside the tomb, weeping, and as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb, and she beheld two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. You'll remember that the mercy seat in the tabernacle had two angels, one on either side with a slab in between. That's what is reproduced here. The death of Christ is the mercy seat. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around, and behold, Jesus was standing there, and did not know it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Now this is a significant part. Supposing him to be the gardener, she was right. She said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. In other words, here we have the, the end of the matter, Christ back in the garden, and properly the gardener, the second Adam. That's what's going on here in a larger sense. Jesus leaves the holy land, the land which God has set up to be a new garden for the people, and goes into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. We might make more contrast between the first and the second Adam. Adam was strong and healthy, in top physical, mental, and emotional condition. Jesus was in a defective human body, which Romans 8, chapter 3 says, was like sinful flesh. And Jesus had fasted for 40 days. If you've ever fasted for a week or 10 days just with water, uh, you know that it gets tiring after a while. and You get very irritated after a while. After 40 days, you're in pretty bad shape. That is a situation in which our Lord faced his temptations, situation worse than any we will ever experience. He did it on our behalf. And when we get to the third temptation and see just what it means to tempt Christ to worship the devil, we'll see this more fully. Now, the real question that comes into here, and this is, what we want to settle on for at least a while is what is the essence of sin? What is really the essence of sin? How did Adam and Eve sin? What was their sin? At what point did their sin come? When they took a bite out of the persimmon? Or before that time? Was the the foundation of Eve's sin, did it come when she transgressed the commandment and ate of the fruit? In a sense, yes. But in another more profound sense, No. Eve's real problem was that she took upon herself the right to decide whether God's commandment was true or not. Eve's real sin came when she took upon herself the right to decide whether God's commandment was wise or not. When she did that, she assumed a position of autonomy. Now, that's the subtlety of sin. Satan comes and says, well, now God has said... Now I'm saying, and now you have to be neutral and make up your own mind. Well, what is Eve going to use as, a, as information to help her make up her mind between these two authorities, God's word and the devil's word? You see, it boils down to an authority question, and an authority question is something that you cannot reason to. If man reasons to the point where he decides to accept Christ, then what's his ultimate authority? It's his reason. That's the problem that we Vantilians have with a lot of modern apologetics, a lot of modern evangelism. We come to people and we say, well, now, Christianity is most reasonable. You just think about it. You look at all the facts. Here are all the proofs for the resurrection, which, by the way, are pretty tendentious proofs. And uh, here's this and here's that. Look at all the good things Christianity has done. Good to whom? Who decides what's good or bad? The guy comes back and says, Yeah, well, Christianity did this out to these poor people in Hawaii, or something like, something like that. How do you answer that? Well, your idea of good isn't the same as ours. Oh, well, well, that's the issue. Who says what's good and what's bad? But no, we go to the natural man and we say, In terms of what you think, look how smart it is to be a Christian. So he decides, Oh, well, I think I'll become a Christian. What has he really done? He's not changed his basic authority, has he? He's becoming a Christian on his terms. He's becoming a Christian because it's reasonable to him, because it seems right to him. So he comes into the church, and he stays in the church for a while, and then one day something, something happens that doesn't seem reasonable to him, or it doesn't seem right to him, or it doesn't seem fair to him. It may be what the Bible says. But after all, the reason he came into the church was because it seemed right to him. And now that something happens that doesn't seem right to him, he leaves the church. That's not what evangelism is. That's what sin is. Satan comes to Eve and says, Eve, it's up to you to decide. Put yourself in neutral. You stand out here by yourself and you judge between what God says and what I say. When man puts himself in neutral, he will always go with the devil because the devil is in neutral. The ultimate issue is one of authority. What Eve was supposed to say is, No, God says, and since God made me, I don't question that. I may question everything else, but I don't question God. Now, I'll give you a hypothetical. This could never happen in the nature of the case. But suppose Eve had looked at what God said and looked at what the devil said, and then, based on her own reason, she had decided that God was right, so she was going to go with God and not eat the fruit. Would she have sinned? Yes. Because she made herself the authority. She made herself God, knowing good and evil for herself. Now that cannot happen in the nature of the case. When man assumes that position, he always moves away from God because he's done it in his heart. However, that is what Phariseeism is like. Doing what God said on our own basis rather than on the basis of God's authority. The essence of sin is to be as God and decide for ourselves. And thus, based on our own authority, we say what God can or cannot be like. Just for seminary students who are here, rationalism says God cannot be this or God cannot be that or God must be this or God must be that. Irrationalism says who can know anything about God? Nothing can be known about God. Whether you go with rationalism or irrationalism, you make up your own mind. The only thing we can do is be covenantal and submit to what God has said. We believe it all, whether it makes sense or not. Psalm 58 verse 10 says, The righteous rejoice to bathe their feet in the blood of the wicked. The righteous man rejoices to bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. Now, you may test yourself. How does that strike you? Would you look forward to bathing your feet in the blood of the wicked? Well, if you don't, you need to change your mind because the Bible's not going to change. You see, there are lots of little tests that we can give to ourselves. I just pull that one out because it's the most scandalous one that came to my mind, or apparently scandalous. People like to make God in their own image. Well, you talk to somebody on the street, they say, well, my, my, my idea of God is that God would be such and such, basically Santa Claus. No, your idea of God is wrong. The hymn we sang earlier, Who is this that comes from Edom? Well, Jesus says, I that dwell in righteousness. I've been treading out the winepress of the wrath of God. And what's all this red stuff on your robe? Oh, that's blood. I've been squishing people under my feet. Isaiah 63. You don't like that? Then you don't like God. That's the only God there is. So you have to submit. You can't make up your own mind. Well, so much on that. We can't have God in our image. And that's the issue here. The issue is
2: authority first. Morality second. Authority first. I'm not going to
1: talk about any other examples here. Let's move on. What is Satan's line of attack against Jesus? The same line of attack that he uses against you and me. That's why this is here. It's Christ as the baptized one who is tempted. You are all baptized. You will be tempted similarly. Me too. We have been. The only way we'll stand is if we stand in union with Christ. So Satan comes to Jesus and says, Congratulations. So you've been baptized. You're now a son of God. Officially. You have been from eternity, but now you're officially the Son of God. So, being a Son of God, you have dominion over the world. You're adopted. You're man's Savior and you're man's friend. Now, look, if you are really a Son of God, this is what you'll do. That's the temptation. If you're really a Son of God, this is what you'll do. So the contest boils down to this. Who knows what is really best for man? God or the devil? Who's going to tell us what it means to be a son of God? The devil or God? Satan claims to know man better than God does. That's the message of the book of Job. What you been doing, devil? Oh, I've been going up and down my world. Have you considered my servant Job? Sure, I know all about Job, and I know him better than you do. Do this and that to him, and you'll see Job will fall.
2: Who knows man the best, Satan or God? God. That's the contest.
1: Satan challenges Jesus' demand for submission to his authority. He says, Be winsome and persuade men to come. Reason with man. Appeal to his better judgment as if men had better judgment. Let him come to you on his own authority. That's the issue here. That's Satan's line of attack. Give people bread. Give people miracles. Give people what they want. Sonship is what is attacked here. This is what a real Christian would do, says the devil. A real Christian will give bread out to everybody who asks for it. If you're a son of God, if you're a real Christian, aren't you a son of God? Sure, we all are. You and I are, daughters of God. Theologically, we're all sons of God. Theologically, we're all the bride of Christ. So, we're both, male and female, theologically. Okay, are you a son of God? Well, then Satan comes to you and says, this is what real Christians do. Now, we have a relevant case in our church. I'm going to use an example which is close to home. We have people that are that have had to be disciplined in the church. Now, every time this happens, people begin to second-guess the discipline. And that's understandable. You just can't help but wonder, did the elders... Give this person enough opportunity to repent? Did they go to him or her enough times? Did they go the extra mile, two miles, three miles, four miles, twenty miles? Are they being hasty? Well now, if the Bible didn't give us any direction on this, we'd never know. It's kind of like tithing versus grace giving. People love to be out from under the tithe. They love to get under that freedom of grace giving. The problem with the freedom of grace giving is you never know when you've given enough. Is 15% enough? Maybe not. Someone comes and says, Oh, I think 15% is not enough. You should give a graduated tithe. You should give more. How do you ever know when is enough? The nice thing about believing in the law of God is that God tells you, Give 10%. Invest the other 90% in the world. You, you give 10% to the Sabbath... And the other 90% is for cultural activities. Put it to work. Now, that makes it real easy, doesn't it? What do you know? Under the legalism of the tithe, there's a great deal of freedom. You know exactly where you stand. If you give 10%, you're in the clear. It's all God wants. What does the Bible say about dealing with people who are in trouble in the church? It's very clear. Titus 3, verse 10, reject a factious person after a first or second warning. You're forbidden to go to people five or ten times and try to straighten them out. You know, that's not allowed. Three times would be about the most. Well, did you go the fifth time? Did you go the sixth time? No, God forbids us to go the fifth or sixth time. Three times is the max. So you see, that's why you don't second guess. You may be interested to know, did you talk to Mr. A. Three times, well, all total, it may have been more than three. But there, you only give three, two or three times. That's why books of church order will say you send one letter, you send a second letter, that's it. The Bible tells you. The Bible tells you the rules. But people say, oh, a real Christian, no, he just never stops. He pursues to the bitter end. He goes on and on and on. No, a real Christian does what God says. God says, do it two or three times and that's it. People won't come back after you've warned them three times. That's it. Don't pursue them. You're forbidden to. You're wasting God's kingdom time if you do. See, the Bible is very clear. That's why it's nice to submit to Scripture, not to do what we feel is best. Now, Satan comes and says, oh, if you're a real Christian, such and such. That's where all heresies come from. Satan comes in the church and says, real Christians won't believe in the Trinity real Christians won't do this. Real Christians always do that. Nope. Real Christians do what the Bible says. But the temptations come this way. Temptations don't come. Satan doesn't come and say, now you don't want to be a Christian at all. No, he comes and says, if you're really a son of God, you'll do what I say.
2: So there are three lines of attack. And the interesting thing about these is, if you'll notice, let's look at them quickly here. Satan tempts Jesus to give people bread. Did Jesus give people bread? Yeah. fed the 5,000. He fed the 4,000. He gives us bread and wine every Sunday night. Did Jesus come to give people bread? You bet. What kind of a temptation is this? Jesus is tempted to make a display of
1: his messianic sonship. Is Jesus going to do that? Yes, the Day of Judgment. What kind of a temptation is that? Jesus is tempted to get all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Is that going to happen? Sure is. What's the temptation then? Well, it's the temptation to become Franklin Roosevelt and let the end justify the means. The temptation is to let the end justify the means. And that is where it is located. Just use any means at hand. No, says Jesus, we have to use God's means. God's means. The twist is in the matter of authority. We do the right thing for the wrong reason. Seek for the right end using the wrong methods. Using satanic methods. These are the temptations that come.
2: And each time Jesus answers with a demand to submit to God's authority. I think in the time remaining, we can probably look at the first temptation. The tempter came and said to him,
1: Since you are the Son of God, and that's the way it really ought to be translated, based on your baptism, you are now the Son of God. Okay, let's see your stuff. What are you going to do? You're going to save the world. All right, look at all these hungry people. Since you're the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But Jesus answered and said, It is written... This is not a magical citation of a proof text. This is the application of the word of God to the situation. Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. This temptation is not to Jesus alone. This temptation comes to the church in every age. It has to do with man's needs as seen by Satan and by God. You claim to be man's truest friend, Now you know how man suffers. Give him what he needs without making absurd demands. Don't make absurd demands upon humanity. Just give them what they need. What's the presupposition behind this? What really lies behind this? Presupposition is man has a right to the good life. Man has a right to the blessings of the covenant regardless of sin. Now back when I first taught this, There were concerts being conducted for Bangladesh. Does anybody remember what Bangladesh is? It's East Pakistan. People were starving and dying like flies in Bangladesh. You know why? Because they're Muslims and they deserve to die. Because God hates them. Because they hate God.
2: Because they heard the gospel for a century and rejected it. Well, that's reality. But, I'm not saying we shouldn't take the gospel to these people. I'm saying that's why this is happening right now, or it was happening
1: then. I think that they thin the population out now, and so now things are a little bit better in Bangladesh. The assumption, though, on all sides was that people have a right to the good life, regardless of their sin, regardless of their covenant breaking. Another thing that you'll see in picture magazines every year or so is the Sahara Desert. The Sahara Desert is getting bigger every year. Every year it creeps and absorbs more fertile land. Why? Because the people there are Muslims. The people destroy the land. And then the desert comes and takes it over. Because they don't have a dominion concept. They just live off the land and waste it. Why are they
2: suffering? Because they deserve to suffer. Just as you and I deserve to suffer. Only thing is, we're saved by grace. They heard the gospel. They didn't want it. They'll hear it again. If we're faithful, they'll have more opportunities. Man continues to be given opportunities until he's dead. When he's dead, there are no more opportunities. Now, the natural man looks at that and he says, People have a right to the good life, regardless of sin. And Satan
1: comes and he says, offer people what they want, not what they need. So we have the modern welfare state, which offers bread and circuses to man. Bread to those who are even marginally deprived of the luxuries of life. Circuses in the form of government-sponsored entertainment on so-called educational television. Not very much educational On the public broadcasting system, if you've ever wasted much time watching it. Occasionally good things, not much. Look at what modern evangelism does. What kind of people are put up to give testimonies? Successful people. Or people who have been gross sinners and now have been converted. It's kind of interesting to watch this. Uh, Here's Eldridge Cleaver. And Eldridge Cleaver becomes a Christian for six months. So for six months he's on the Christian bread and circus circuit, going around giving a testimony. And then he becomes a mooney. So he's not around anymore. On and on and on it goes. Offer people what they want, not what they really need according to Scripture. Similarly, behind this temptation comes all of modern socialistic culture. Tariff laws, neo colonialist exploitation the politics of envy. Jesus' answer is, I offer men what they need. People's wants must change. Jesus' answer refers to the manna. Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. This refers to the manna that God gave to the people in the wilderness. And so that becomes a picture for us of the value of bread. Deuteronomy 8, verse 3, it says, And he, God, humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Curious, he gave you bread so that you might learn that man does not live by bread alone. What does that show? Well, if we go back and remember the history of the manna, in Exodus 16, the manna was designed to test the people and to teach them faith, trust, and submission to authority and discipline. But they only saw the food. And when they got tired of manna, they wanted quails and leeks and onions and garlics and cucumbers and melons. Not that there's anything wrong with the leeks, onions, garlic, cucumbers, and melons. But they didn't happen to be what God was providing at the time. When instead of Responding in faith and trust and submission to authority and submission to discipline, they only saw the food. So God gave them quail. And that did not lead them to repentance either. Man does not live by bread. People get bread, they get the crumbs that fall from the Master's table. Even dogs get that. All men do. All men get some benefits from the death of Christ. They all get some crumbs that fall from the Lord's table. The sacrifice of Christ is there, they get the crumbs. Do they live by it? No. They die by it. The Jews of, of Jesus' day excuse me were sold out to Satan's theology. Jesus said they were of their father, the devil. What did they want? They wanted bread. They wanted a political messiah who would miraculously feed them with free bread. When Jesus refused to be that political messiah, they killed him. Now you can take your pick of political messiahs. You can take them on the left, and you can take them on the right. We're used to talking about socialists as political messiahs, but so are anarchists. Oh, if we could just get some type of conservative elected to the White House, it's really made a lot of difference, hasn't it? Really saved the world. Oh, if we could just destroy the Internal Revenue Service, that's not going to make any difference. They're going to get money somehow. They'll print it up. It's not going to change the system. Doesn't mean that any of these programs by themselves are necessarily bad. But they're not going to change the basic structures of things in this society. our problems are religious, not political.
2: The solution is faith and not bread. I want very quickly to look at John chapter 6. Because in John chapter
1: 6 we see this filled out, Turn there. We'll have to move fast. In John 6 we see something about giving people bread. This is the feeding of the 5,000 or one of them. As long as people were willing to listen to Jesus preach, he was willing to give them bread. Catholic principle, not a sectarian principle. They didn't have to attain something before they come to the Lord's Supper. They just had to come and submit and listen. John 6, verse 11, Jesus therefore took the loaves, and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated, likewise also of the fish, as much as they wanted. Then in verse 14, When therefore the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, This is of a truth, that prophet who is to come into the world. They recognized that it was manna, and so they connected him with Moses and the prophet who would be like Moses. Jesus, therefore perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. And In verses 26, we begin to see the next day, he speaks to the multitude. Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, that is, not because of the truth, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man shall give to you, for on him the Father, even God, has set his seal. They said therefore to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. What then do you do for a sign that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Notice how this expands on that temptation. They want the same thing as the devil. In verse 41, The the Jews therefore were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. Verse 48, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. Then he begins to talk to them about his flesh being true food and his blood being true drink and they were offended at this. Verse 60 Many therefore of his disciples when they heard this said this is a difficult statement who can listen to it? Then he goes on and tells them that only people who are predestinated to eternal life are going to believe anything. Predestination. Yes, that's that verse that we all used to skip when we read the Bible. Verse 65, For this reason I said to you that no one can come to me unless it's been granted him from the Father. Verse 66, As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Jesus therefore said to the twelve, You do not want to go away also, do you? Peter answered him and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve, yet one of you is the devil? You see a contrast here between Christ the bread and his words and authority and mere bread of food. Not that God doesn't give us both, but only under authority.